Hi, I'm Lisa Moore, one of the pastors here at Coastline Church in Victoria, BC. Welcome to our podcast. All of the content you'll find here is meant to point you to Jesus and to encourage you in your journey wherever you're at. Enjoy the message. Good morning. It's wonderful to see you. I, I think Lisa's correct. This service is filling up. Thank you for coming to the nine. Um, I don't know if any of you have come from the 11 to the 9, but if you have, can I just say thank you to you? Um, the 11 o'clock has been very full, and it's been difficult to find space for people. I chatted with someone uh, this week over coffee who said that uh, they had members of their family come and had to sit in the windowsill at the back of the balcony because there were no seats left. So I want to thank you for joining us at the Nine. Maybe you love the Nine and you've always come, but I want to thank you. Tell your friends this is a happening service. You got to get, wow, you'll never guess what happened at the Nine o'clock service this week. If you're not there at Nine, you are missing, right? Help me uh, and help the church because we are in a growth season, which is wonderful. It's really wonderful. Yeah, we're thankful. We're thankful. I haven't checked the most recent data, but in the month of November, our average attendance was 2,300 people, um, and that's a lot of people, and we're grateful for that. We're thankful for that. So I want to thank you for doing your part by being at the Nine, and uh, this literally, this room is much fuller than it was um, a year ago, and so I just thank you for that. So we're, we're feeling blessed. Um, as Lisa mentioned, we're finishing up our series on We Are the Church, and I'd like you to say it with me, okay? We are the church. Let's say it together. Ready? We are the church. I'll give you another chance just because I know it's early. Let's say it again together. We're the church. Ready? We are the church. That's great. That's great. Yeah, we're the church. And um, we're a part of a larger church, right? A global church. Billions of people are Christians in this world. And to the glory of God, I thank God for that. So, uh, but we're the church. Like, let's be the church locally. So we've been talking about that, what that means, what that looks like. And so the first week we talked about uh, being a intensely devoted, irrationally generous, irresistibly loving church. Uh, that was a few weeks ago. And then last week, uh, Pastor Lisa was preaching and she was talking all about what the church uh, has as a priority. And so she talked about uh, offering Jesus to everyone, about holding on to hope, um, about always believing that God is calling us to more. And uh, then that fourth point was just, you know, that we're a place that creates community. So we're talking we're talking all about what the church does, what the church is, but today I want to uh, finish our series by giving you a greater sense of confidence that Jesus promised to build his church. Did you know that? He promised that he would build his church. We're going to talk about that today because we are the church and this is a church that Jesus is building. Amen. Let's try it. That's a Pentecostal move. I don't know if you know that one. When the, when the Pentecostal preacher goes like this, that's when you say amen. I learned that in Bible college. They didn't, obviously, they didn't teach you that in Bible college. But we're the church, and um, Jesus is building his church. So I want to go to this famous passage of Scripture. It actually has become extremely dear to me. It's one of my favorite passages. It's in the book of Matthew, chapter 16. And it's where we see this exchange between Jesus and his disciples in a place called Caesarea Philippi. And so we're going we're gonna to look at this, uh, this passage. We're going to look at what Jesus 
uh, says, what the, what the followers of Jesus say, and, 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 and what we can learn from this idea of Jesus being the one who's building his church, which really, for me, gives me great confidence. So let's start reading in verse 13. Uh, Jesus is taking his disciples on an adventure, and they head from Capernaum to Caesarea Philippi. And here's what it says in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? So this phrase, Son of Man, don't let it throw you off. Jesus is talking about himself. Son of Man refers to the prophetic office of the Messiah. Uh, Son of Man was a term that was used in the Old Testament for prophets. Uh, Ezekiel um, uh, is one who's notable. And so Jesus is referring to the one to come. And so he's speaking about himself, son of man. But the location is what's so important here. I don't want to miss that. I've had the privilege of being in the Holy Land and going to Caesarea Philippi. And boy, talk about having your eyes open to some, some uh, very interesting history. Caesarea Philippi is up in the north. It's against the mountains. It's on the side of a, a very sheer cliff. Uh, and in the cliff, there is a cave. And in the cave, water once was flowing. And it was a spring that came out of the cave and uh, would flow down into what was the Jordan River. It was the headwaters, one of the headwaters of the Jordan River. It had this great significance in ancient history uh, because the Syrians used to worship Baal there and uh, they would sacrifice children. The, the place where the spring came out then ran into the water and uh, they could send down the longest rope possible, you know, with weight attached to it, never found the bottom of it. So they coined this phrase about that. They said, this must be the entrance to hell. This is the gate of hell. And so they, in the backdrop of this mountain, this cave, this deep, deep place, ancient Syrians worshiped, Fast forward in history, uh, nations conquering nations, you get to the Greek empire, and this became a place where into the wall and out from, the, from this canyon wall, they built a temple to the god Pan, who was the, the god of the wild. He was like a half goat, half man. And so they would worship the god Pan there. And then in the time of the Romans... Uh, they worshipped Caesar there. They had a temple to Caesar, and, and, and Caesar worship became a thing later on in uh, the Roman history. So I, I share all this with you just to say this is a significant place. Headwaters of the Jordan, which was very significant to the Jew. Uh, the uh, place of worship for ancient Syrians, Greeks, and Romans. And so Jesus takes his disciples to this place called Caesarea Philippi, named after Caesar and Philip, the son of Herod. And so he brings them to this place, and at the backdrop of this place, this place of worship, this place of honor to many different gods, Jesus asks them a question, who am I? Who am I among all of these? Among all of these different gods, who am I? In fact, Jesus asks two questions here. And the first one is kind of more general. It's an opportunity to explore others, to explore what's the word on the street? What are people saying out there? What's the storyline sort of out there? And they replied in a way that seemed to make sense to them. And they said, well, Jesus, you're asking who people are saying you are. Well, in verse 14, it says they replied, some say John the Baptist. 
John the Baptist had just been executed, and, and some were saying, well, this is John the Baptist come back to life. Herod was among those who said that. Others say Elijah. Elijah was known as the greatest of all the prophets. He was the forerunner of Messiah. There was this understanding that before Messiah comes, Elijah would return. So maybe this is Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the prophet who was, who was called to bring the glory of God back to Israel. He was a prophet that was, was rejected. And at this point, Jesus' words were being rejected by the religious. And so they said, maybe Jeremiah or, or one of the other prophets. People are saying these things about you. And, and the disciples had no problem telling Jesus what others were saying about him. And in fact, that's very easy to do, isn't it? It's easy to tell people about what others are doing. It's, it's easy to talk about others. It's easy to say, well, so-and-so said, and, and uh, word on the street is, and guess what I heard, right? That's easy. But the second question causes them not to explore others, but to explore themselves. And this is where it gets a little more intense for the the disciples, in this backdrop of pagan worship, Jesus presses them further in verse 15. And he says, but what about you, he asked? Who do you say that I am? I can imagine the disciples saying, like, Jesus, can we go somewhere private to talk about this? I mean, there's pagan worship all around. There's people coming and going. It was a bustling northern city. People were coming with offerings and worship, and there was incense to foreign gods and all kinds of different practices going on around them. And in, in this context, they're like, Jesus, like, can we just go somewhere private? You're asking us a very personal question. Now you're asking us to explore ourselves. It's like when the teacher calls on you in math class and you're not sure how to answer. Silence. In fact, although they were in this outdoor space, and I'm sure there was lots of activity, it must have felt like the air was sucked out of the atmosphere. Jesus asked this very deeply pointed question, and I can imagine the disciples pausing to reflect. All of them, it says, answered about, you could be John the Baptist, or you could be, you know, one of the prophets. They all answered, but now silence. And Peter answers for them all, of course, right? If someone's going to speak, it's going to be Peter. He was known to be able to speak when others wouldn't, others shouldn't, <laughs> he shouldn't, right? And so Peter answers for them all, and he says this in verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. In this atmosphere of worship, in the silence, in the, in the uh, response of the followers of Jesus, Peter was bold enough to say what everybody was thinking. All of the other followers were thinking it and hoping it and believing it, but because of their history, because of their oppression, because of the strength of Rome, they dared not say it. How is it possible that this man, although doing miracles, could be the Messiah who's going to overthrow Rome. You see, that was the mentality. That was the thought. It's, it's, it's governmental freedom, right? It's, it's a, a different kind of kingdom than Jesus was bringing. And so no one dared to say it, but Peter spoke it. And all of them must have thought, well, I'm glad he said it and not me because I have no idea what Jesus is going to say next. I have no idea what he's going to say what's going to be the reaction of Jesus. And some of you are wondering the same thing. So let me just tell you, 
Jesus liked this. Jesus blessed this. Jesus affirmed this. In fact, let's read about it in verse 17. It says, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Absolute and complete affirmation of Peter's confession. No rebuke, no adjustments. There was no rephrasing, just a total acceptance. What a moment for Peter. What a moment. Let me remind you, we are the church. Will you say it with me once again? Come on, let's say it together. Ready? We are the church. Thank you for participating. We are the church, and Peter's statement is the rock the church is built on. Can someone give me a Pentecostal amen? This is the confession that the church is built on. It is the basis of what we as followers of Jesus hold on to. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He is the one who came to earth to save us, to rescue us from the curse of sin. Glory to his name. This is the cornerstone of our faith. And Jesus said so. Because he responds in this way. They give us an understanding that something is being built here in this northern pagan city. Something is being built here that becomes a foundation, a rock, a bedrock for the church. And so in verse 18, Jesus says, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Remember where they're standing. Remember that behind them is this cave with this endless pit known as the gates of hell. And Jesus says, all of this, it's not gonna overcome that confession. What you just said is more powerful than all this that you see. The confession of Jesus as Messiah is a bedrock for the church. The church is built on that confession, and we still make it today. And Peter expands that confession as we move through the scriptures into Acts chapter 4, where he says, There is no other name given to man under heaven by which men, humans, must be saved. People must be saved. There's no other name. It's so powerful. And as I, I, I mentioned before, they were in this place of worship. There's, you know, Pan is being worshipped here and Caesar's being worshipped there. And all of this is going on around them. There's a, a sense of a, a multiplicity of God. And, and Peter's initial confession was made in this place of polytheism. Polytheism means a people worshipping many gods. And, and Peter's statement is hostile to a polytheistic culture because it's definitive. It's exclusive. It narrows worship down to Jesus and Jesus alone. It's all about Jesus. And this would have been rejected by the polytheistic northern area known as Caesarea Philippi. And it's interesting. It's a little bit like today that we feel like we carry a confession 
that, that in many ways our commitment to Christ, our confession of Jesus is countercultural. As we stand and say there is no other God. There's only one God revealed to us in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. There's only one God. We are monotheistic in our approach to faith. And like Peter, we call our culture to confess Jesus as Lord. He's the only way to the Father. He's the Alpha, the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. And besides him, there is no other. And the church said, amen, amen. You understand that confession is so key to us, and yet it's under assault in our culture. It's a confession that we're being encouraged, would probably be a nice way to say it, to not use any longer. Draw a larger circle. Make it a bigger context. But it's not just our monotheistic ways that is frustrating to our culture, but it's our morality. It's our Christian ethic that's actually countercultural as well. Did you know that? Sometimes, as people view from the outside, the culture of the church on the inside, they view our purity as prudishness. They, they view our Christian ethic as passe. They view our faith as evidence of an era gone by. But the proof is present. The jury has deliberated. They've reached a verdict. Jesus said he will build his church, and he didn't lie. He didn't lie. Think about this. I, I've been to this ancient northern city. Guess what? It's not a bustling northern city anymore. And no one's worshiping Pan. No one's sacrificing at the gates of hell. There is no temple to Caesar in fact, I don't know anywhere in the world where Caesar is worshipped or Pan is worshipped, but I want you to know 2,000 years later, there are billions of people who are worshipping Jesus. Can we give him praise? He promised that he would build his church, and he has done so, and we are a part of that church. We are the church, the church of Jesus Christ, and and he said the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and so I'm not sure if you know this, <laughs> But did you know that external pressures cannot destroy the church? Did you know that? Put the church under immense external pressure and it will continue. You can squash it here and it'll pop up there. It's a subversive kingdom and it's a beautiful thing to see. I mean, you go into Iran where there is such oppression. The church is exploding. In China, there's more Christians in China than there are in Canada. I'm telling you, God is on the move. And wherever there is persecution, the church continues to thrive. External pressures cannot destroy the church. Poverty cannot destroy the church. Look at Africa, look at Latin America, and you will see the church is alive, more alive than in many places where there is great wealth. Because external pressures can't destroy the church, friends, and this is important to remember. I think sometimes we got, you know, we can get a little bit scared. We went through COVID. We went through a time where it felt like those external pressures may just destroy the church. But guess what? Here we are. Here we are to the glory of God. It's his church and he's building his church. You look at regimes that have tried to squash the church and yes, they will for a season, but I guarantee you what's going on under the surface, the church is thriving and once that regime falls, guess what? The church rises right up again. That's the way it works because the gates of hell will not 
overcome it. So it's not going to be external pressures that stop the church, but I want to just send a warning. I want, to, I want to encourage us as a body to remember that it's not external pressures that will destroy the church, but internal decisions that can destroy the church. It's like killing an ant colony. You just put a little poison out, the ants come and they take it right back into the colony. And in many ways, you have to understand, it's not going to be the external pressures that destroy the church. It's going to be the internal poison that comes into the church, that we bring into the church. It's carried in. And, and we see dominant nations in the world. They're never destroyed from the outside. It's always that they, they disintegrate from the inside. And so understand, it's not going to be external pressures that destroy the church, but internal decisions. And so I want to talk to you now for just a moment. This isn't doomsday, by the way. But I want to give you three uh, devastating internal decisions that can impact the church. Because we are the church. And we want to be that church. Okay, so let me give you the first one. The first one is this. The church becomes ineffective when we choose our wisdom rather than his spirit. You know, as cultures develop, it's very easy to get yourself into a place where, where you, you begin to think intellectually, you begin to develop intellectually, and we can come up with really wise systems and organizational structures. But Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I want your faith to rely on God's power, not on man's wisdom. So what does this mean? Listen, I am not an advocate of foolishness. <laughs> I'm not saying that we throw away wisdom. I'm not meaning that we should um, uh, not be thinkers and not be ones who are, have an intellect. What I'm saying is we cannot exchange God ideas for our good ideas. Let's hold on. Let's hold on to the goodness. What we need actually is spirit-inspired discernment because what that does for us, this is one of the things that the Holy Spirit gives to us as the church is discernment. And that allows us to know how to trust God and his power. And that's what the church needs. We don't need man's wisdom. We need the Spirit's direction. We need discernment so that we can know how to trust God and to lean into his power. You see, the truth is when we, when we choose our way versus God's way, we find ourselves in a terrible place. I want you to think back to the ancient storyline of Samson and Delilah. God had given Samson great strength. The power of God would come upon him. And he would be the, the judge and deliverer for his people. And you know the storyline, he gave away his secret, his hair was cut, and when he rose up to break the bonds and to fight the Philistines, the Bible says he didn't even know that the Spirit of God had left him. And in this we find a great warning. We hear it from Paul in 1 Thessalonians, don't quench the Holy Spirit. We hear it in Ephesians 4, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. We can never afford to exchange his way, his direction, his empowerment for good ideas, for business strategies, for life hacks. It's not a good exchange. You know, I, I, um, I filmed a deep dive for our small groups, and in it I talked about this idea that there's a power that exists in the church that doesn't make a lot of sense. And when you think about the church as it thrives, it would be very easy for those on the outside to look in and say, how does the church work? How does that even function? Why are so many people drawn there? How did they raise all that money? 
Why do they seem to surge forward after COVID instead of crumbling? It makes no sense. It's great. These are great questions, and there's only one answer. It's the power of the Holy Spirit because of the confession of the church that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's the only thing that makes any sense at all in why God would continue to build his church. Let me give you another internal decision that impacts the church. The first one, of course, was choosing our wisdom rather than the spirit. But I'll tell you this, the church flounders when we determine that God's work is someone else's job. (laughs) I'm sure there's somebody who cares, it's just not me, right? That's where we get ourselves in trouble, friends. So wake up just a bit this this nine o'clock service because this is for us. The work of God is for us. It's not somebody else's job. We can't say, well, giving belongs to those with more money and serving belongs to those with more time and witness belongs to those who are more outgoing. It's just not me, it's somebody else. Listen, we have to determine that God's work is our responsibility, every single one of us. You know, I have heard from time to time, well, that's the pastor's job. Not from any of you, but I have heard it from time to time. And let me tell you, Ephesians 4 makes it very clear that people like me are, hurry, are here to be equippers. That's my job. My job is to champion you. My job is to encourage you. The Bible says that apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers are given to the church so that the body might be equipped. Equipped for what? Equipped for a powerful confession. Equipped to say Jesus Christ is Lord to a world that doesn't want to hear it. Equipped to do the work of the ministry, to love and to serve and to give and to make a difference and to let your voice be heard for Jesus. Listen, friends, God's moving in a powerful way in his church. And you're a part of it. We are the church. And let me say to you that this is not the time where we ride the fence. This is not the time for us to do anything else but go all in with Jesus. To go all the way in. To go in with the way of Jesus, with the ethics of Jesus, with the morality of Jesus. Go all in with our allegiance to Jesus. This is the time. This is the time. And this is the call. We are the church. Be the church. Be the church. And there has never been more pressure on the church to concede to culture than today. And as I I finish up today, I want you to think of this. The church actually stops being the church when we replace our confession with a concession. The pressure's real, friends. We're in the midst of it. And we see evidence of churches and denominational movements that follow the culture that make statements and and go, go on record and replace their exclusive confession of Jesus as way, truth, and life with a concession to please culture. What's the results? Something, something dies. We see dwindling numbers. We see closing and empty buildings. We see churches turned to condos. That's what we see. 
Friends, if we lose our confession, if we give up our sure foundation, if we lose our testimony, if we relinquish his lordship, we stop being the church. It's built on his confession. And so Jesus warns in Revelation to the churches, he says, listen, hold fast, hold fast. If you don't, your lampstand will be gone. If you don't, your light will be gone. Our light, our light, friends, that's the reason why we shine. It's because of our confession in G of Jesus. It's because of our confession that he is Lord of all. And we're gonna hold on to it. We're gonna hold on to our confession of Jesus. And through that confession, Jesus will keep building his church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I believe that with all my heart. I believe what he's spoken. I believe what he promised. And so I want to ask you, church, to join me in a great confession that Jesus is Lord. And today, on Communion Sunday, what an incredible opportunity this is to make our confession. And so I wanna, I wanna ask you to prepare your heart to receive today as believers come together in Christ's church and we desire to make our confession, I want you to see it here. See it here in the scripture where Paul gives instruction to the church in 1 Corinthians 11 and He says in verse 26, for when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim <laughs> the Lord's death until he comes. There's a confession in this cup. There's a powerful statement that the church makes together when we eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We proclaim Jesus. We confess Jesus. We depend on Jesus. And we declare that he is our way and our foundation. And so I want to invite you, church, to partake with me and ask you just to ready yourselves. And then, of course, we're going to sing together. Would you? Okay, if you have, if you have this, the same one that I have, it has the crosses on it and it says one body. I'm gonna give you a little tip. If you push down on that tab first, then it's gonna make it easier on you, okay? And then I'm gonna ask you just to prepare yourself by uh, taking the, the wafer out and readying the cup by pulling back the foil. And here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna receive together of this precious meal that's given at the Lord's command. And we're gonna, after we do it, we're gonna stand to our fate. And if you wanna declare with your voice that Jesus is Lord, you can just do that. But even if you don't feel like you wanna say that out loud, would you sing with us a confession that we're gonna put our faith in Jesus?
that he is our source, he is our rock. And so ready yourself, friends, as we come to the table together. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The blood of Christ shed for you. Church, I want to invite you to stand with me. And we say, Jesus, we are your church. We proclaim your death, which brought us life. We make our confession today, Lord. You are King of kings. You are Lord of lords. You rule in this place. And forever and always, Lord, we will give you the honor and the glory and the praise that is due your name. We confess that you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You are our Savior. You are our Redeemer. And we take your goodness into us today. And we receive your spirit new and fresh today. And with that strength and nourishment, we make our confession. Jesus is Lord. Come on, church, let's say it together. Jesus is Lord. And let's sing together.